Well, it's good to be back with you all. Uh, after uh, Beth and I went on our Christmas, actually it counts as Christmas, I was going to say post-Christmas vacation, um, though we left on Christmas Day. Uh, and some of you might feel some of the stresses that you know, I think is common to all of us over the holidays about, I don't know, I think who gets to control what's going on. Uh, you might feel uncomfortable for some people. They go to family or friends that they're not normally around, and, and you're suddenly under those house rules. Uh, maybe that's little things like, do you get to watch TV before or after something? Uh, what is the kind of cleanup of dishes, r- rituals? Is there a certain place that you put your silverware uh, in the dishwasher? Uh, there's all these little control games. And one of the things that I found myself experiencing was uh, we had one day where Beth's parents were going to watch Gwen, which when you have a little one is a very good day. You get to have some freedom. I didn't know, though, that I was going to use that day to help someone unload their storage shed. Uh, and we had a lot of fun random chores that we did on our vacation. Uh, helped put up some shelves, move some furniture around. And you find that, like, you have a tension of yourself of, like, wanting to kind of get your own freedom and your own control, and also how do you support and help other people. Uh, and so that's a tension that's alive in us, I think all of us. Uh, it's also a tension that we are living with a two-year-old. Control is important. Who controls the remote control? Uh, for us, uh, we, we were smooth sailing until it was the time in the plane where they say, you got to put your, uh, those tray tables up. Well, Gwen didn't want the tray tables up. <laughs> and trying to explain to a two-year-old why you have to have the tray tables up isn't exactly effective at about one in the morning <laughs> when they're still wide awake. And so uh, you have this constant battle, though, with control. And I think that there is a lot of meaningful um, teaching in our text today about control and about giving things up. And uh, I, w- I want to look at two different kinds of people. So you've got kind of the closed-handed people who are trying to hold on to control, whatever control they have. Sometimes it's a lot of control and a lot of power, and they don't want to give it up. Sometimes it's a little bit. We have that kind of inclination, and we also have a different kind of person, one that has their hands open, who no matter how much they have, whether that's a lot or little, are open-handed, supportive, and want to give to others. And so those are the two kinds of people I think we're going to see in this text. Uh, And I want to frame this this story also under one other kind of introduction item. Uh, I'm not sure how many people have heard of the Jewish Jewish theologian and philosopher uh, Martin Buber. He had a very important book uh, where he made a distinction between two types of relationships. So I'm going to talk about the closed-handed people and their power control have in a relationship that's called I and it. So I treat everyone that I come in contact like an it, like a possession, like a belonging, something I control and I move around. Or there's a different kind of person, uh, and in his language it was I, thou, I and the other person, that you, who sees other people and treats them like people, and is experiencing that person instead of controlling that person. And so I just want to hold that framework up before we get into our text uh, on 
King Herod and the Magi. Now, King Herod is obviously the controller of the story and not the supporter and giving figure. King Herod is um, somewhat looks a little bit like a caricature, though I think if we look closely enough, we see a little bit of those elements of control and power and, and desiring to hold on to it even in ourselves. But I want to look at a few ways in which King Herod tries to control things in the story. The first is, is he tries to control political things. He's the, he's the king of that region. Uh, he has a boss because he's, he's got to answer to Rome. But we know he's the king in part because the story starts out by saying, in the days of King Herod. Now you have to be important to get a time marker based on your existence. All right, It's not just you know, in the days of you know, Bob and Jane or whoever it is. King Herod marks the time in the story. And he's going to try to continue that reign and that control throughout the story. And there's something that I think is meant to be seen as a little bit comical to start this story. The Magi, who are these kind of, let's say, astronomers, they seem very wealthy based on their gifts later in the story, but somebody from the East who are the outsiders. Uh, they're the Gentiles, they're the, the, the people that are on the, the border uh, that, that aren't the insiders of the story. And you see that they're not the insiders because they show up and they do the most awkward thing you could do. So I don't know what your family tradition might be of, like, what's the off-topic subject? Maybe it's an off-topic person. We don't talk about so-and-so. It's an unwritten rule. Well, then somebody shows up and just, they don't know it, and they just blurt out this topic or that person, and suddenly everybody has to have this uncomfortable conversation that they really weren't wanting to have. Well, the Magi show up, they say, hey, we want to pay homage to the king of the Jews that was just born. And they're talking to someone who's calling himself the king of the Jews. Uh, that's a little awkward. And so Herod is definitely interested in this encounter, wants to learn more. Um, and so he, he is going to um, not have the best of reactions, to say the least. Uh, we'll get to some other things that he does, but on that political front, I appreciate that the text in Matthew says that Herod um, wasn't the only person troubled by the news, because it says that Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him, uh, because Jerusalem had a reason to be afraid. If the king is upset and is short-tempered and is inclined towards violence, if the king is upset and unhinged, everybody's afraid. And so all of Jerusalem is scared, and rightfully so, because by the time we get to the end of the story, King Herod has decided that since he couldn't find that one child that was born, he's just going to get rid of all children in that space. And so he commits uh, infanticide, he kills the children, he massacres uh, the helpless, and so Jesus' family does all that you can do when you have very, very little power, and they politically flee as refugees, and they flee a, a, a crazy ruler, and they flee to Egypt, and they survive in a foreign land uh, as long as was needed. And so they won't return until after Herod has passed later in the story. And so 
while maybe after our Christmas season and we're used to hearing about the proclamation of Jesus' birth as this happy celebratory event, we're reminded in this text that to those in power, sometimes good news sounds like bad news. And so Herod is doing everything he can to maintain his power, close his fists, tighten up his grip on the land, all the while being unable to actually control what God is at work in the world doing. Herod doesn't only just exert that political oppressive kind of control, he also is playing a little bit of a game with his religious control. He calls to order a religious gathering, and he says, okay, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Go read the texts, give me an answer. Again, he doesn't quite know the answer for himself, but he's got the ability to call together religious experts. And so the religious experts come together and they say, oh, he must have been, he's, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, and, and that's an interesting conversation. Uh, the Gospels, two of the Gospels really care about this story in a way that maybe the others don't. Just so you know, like when we start in the Gospel of Mark, it's just Jesus at baptism. Um, and he's from Nazareth and they don't really pay any attention to the whole Bethlehem story. But Matthew and Luke add a birth story and both place Jesus' birth there in Bethlehem and have different reasons why that, that's uh, got to be the case. But there was a thought by a lot of people, whether it was Christian or, or Jewish, that um, David's line was supposed to be resurrected from Bethlehem. And so that's where they go in the story. Uh, I do always like to make a side note here that the Gospel of John seems to know this kind of tradition and doesn't care at all because uh, people in John are asking things like, wait, um, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And John's playing a different game and he says, you know, you're missing the fact that he's from above. Like you keep looking around yourself, but Jesus is from above and that's an even greater thing than the location of a birth. But they, these religious experts say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem and so that's where Herod then thinks he needs to go and uh, take out any potential rivals to the throne. Um, I, do, I don't want us to miss that it was the outsiders in the story who know that there's something going on and the insiders who are oblivious. And the insiders have those religious texts that say, hey, there's supposed to be something in Bethlehem. And that's where they're kind of looking down and seeing something in the text. But the outsiders in the story are looking up, and they're, they're following a star. And I love that the image of a star is meant to be something universal that anybody can see, as opposed to something that's more hidden, more uh, concealed. And so the religious text did provide some clarity and provide support, um, but God was at work in ways that were beyond just their own little control. And uh, when... When the Magi need it, the star kind of reappears in the story and gives them even more guidance. So God is revealing uh, God's self in more ways than just the religious elite um, have control of. I also want to mention that Herod was trying to control other people just on an interpersonal scale. When Herod realizes that, okay, there might be this other person that's going to be king and i got to take him out, he plays the part of a friend. He talks to the Magi of like, we have so much in common. I also want to go and worship this king. Just, you know, when you find out where he's at, come talk to me. 
I'd love to go. Uh, don't we have such a great commonality here? And that's a really dangerous kind of manipulation because you might know somebody in family life, friend life, coworkers, classmates, who do all they can to say, hey, I'm like you, but really they're just trying to m- maneuver you. They're just trying to get enough commonality that you then think, okay, I can let my guard down. But they're really just trying to maneuver you uh, to do whatever it is they want to do. And you see a little bit of that in Herod because he meets with the Magi in secret. He doesn't meet in the day in the bright kind of time frame. He, he goes and closed doors to meet with them. And so Herod is trying to hold on to his control. Uh, he's going to enforce it politically. He's going to go and call the religious elite. He's going to try to manipulate people just on a small scale. Uh, and all of those attempts at power ultimately fail him. And it's the Magi who get to experience something meaningful in this story. Uh, and so even though Herod treats people like disposable objects, just it's getting get me moved, he misses out on the meaningful, life-giving experience that the Magi get. So when we met the Magi initially in this story, I appreciate that you know, it might look a little bit naive, but they had a very optimistic outlook on Herod. Like, hey, I can just go talk to the king and say, hey, a new king's born. That might be a little naive, but they had this optimistic hope of this character. Now, we can't read the text in the same way because we know most of us have heard the story and we just know that he's going to lash out. But maybe Herod didn't have to lash out. Maybe he could have rejoiced in that kind of news. Maybe he could have been someone that um, responded differently. And so the Magi just go and they don't know what to expect and they hope for the best. But they're not too naive because they're willing to change that perspective. They, in the story, they get kind of divine intervention, angelic knowledge that tells them, hey, this isn't going to work out the way that you expect. But they're able to change their, their view of how Herod is going to behave, who he is, uh, which is important. They weren't trying to control who they thought Herod was. They didn't hold on to, oh, he's going to be fine, and ignore the kind of warning. Uh, but they're adaptable. And so, as they adapt and as they tried to follow the star, um, they had a very, what might seem like a very small goal and purpose in this whole thing. Like, we're used to reading the Gospels about people that come and they follow Jesus and they go live after him and they like find out how to live and they follow him around everywhere. But the Magi just want to show up, they just want to experience it, they just want to give some gifts. And that's all that they are trying to do. So it's just a modest, small little goal. And so they set off initially in the story whenever they see a star. And in that time frame, that wouldn't have been an easy journey. There's no GPS. There's no plane ride. Uh, there's no Uber or taxis or public transit. Uh, you have to imagine a long, difficult journey in which when they finally get to their destination, maybe you might appreciate this feeling, if you can imagine one of those long journeys you've taken in life. When they see the destination, it says in the text, they were overwhelmed with joy. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, we're here. Uh, the Magi are overwhelmed with joy that they've arrived. And so they arrive at a meager, small little place. You know, they had just been in a like, palace kind of setting. They had just been where a king was. And they have eyes to see that this other place that's, that's nothing like that palace could also hold a king. And so when they walk in, they immediately fall down and pay homage to the king of the Jews. Now, there's a little bit of a word play that's fun. In Greek, this uh, proskuneo word can mean either to pay homage to a king or to worship someone. And maybe there's a little bit of a gray area about what you're trying to do. Maybe you treat the kings like gods. Maybe you, maybe you don't. Um, it's a little bit ambiguous. But I think even if the magi are just going to pay homage and just give their respects to a king, Matthew is playing with the fact that these people who didn't know what God was doing with the clarity of scriptures were able to see where the king was and get to it and ultimately still act in the way of worship without any sort of support for knowing how they should worship. And so these outsiders show up and end up worshiping a king. And while Herod was so concerned with controlling everybody and all of his stuff and keeping his power and status and position, the Magi show up with open hands, giving over lavish, uh, expensive gifts. And I don't want to get stuck on the fact that their expensive gifts like that makes them more worthy or more valuable than like Luke's version of shepherds showing up who might not have a lot to give. But here are people that have much but aren't holding on to it, who are able to just kind of open-handedly give that over to this little child. And so I want to I note that our church takes part in a weekly open-handed generosity, uh, and we partner with many churches in the area in that personal care ministry, in which there's no sort of... Um, Show me your tax return from last year. I want to make sure that you, you really need these supplies. Uh, there's an optimistic, hopeful vision that everyone that's there is there for a reason and that they need it. And let's say, uh, worst case scenario, that somebody is getting something, not for themselves, but for other people who also need it, like, oh no. They're just someone else that's also providing the goods and the gifts to other people. I like to joke when people are worried about, um, well, maybe they might sell some of these products on the street or something like that. It's like, well, you can't sell something that's free. If you know that you can always show up here and we'll have the, that to give, uh, there, no one's going to make a profit off of selling our supplies that we're a part of. Um, but how do we look with, with optimistic hope and eyes um, at those that, that are in need. And instead of holding on to things and saying, well, you know, we could give a few more of this, but let's just hold on to it. How do we open our hands even more? How do we also look with open hearts and with new eyes towards our community? Um, there's a little bit of a temptation that you're like, oh, I can't believe they don't even know this Bible story. I'm sure that that thought has probably entered some people's minds that, um, if you think about 
Bible knowledge has shrunk quite a bit uh, in recent decades. And sometimes that is accompanied with the feeling that of like loss and hopelessness or something like that. But I appreciate that God was at work beyond just in the text in this story. Like God is visible to outsiders. God is still um, inspiring and maneuvering other people. And our call as a faith community is to provide that opportunity um, of inviting those people into a worshipful experience of God somewhere, wherever that is. It wasn't in Jerusalem and it wasn't in the temple in this story. It was in a random little spot in Bethlehem. Um, How do we invite people to experience God wherever that needs to be and not just where we expect it to be? Um, How do we make sure to see people that don't necessarily have all of the same Bible trivia knowledge that we do? Um, How do we see those people not as missing what God is doing in the sense of that they they don't have any experience of God in the world? but that they might have an even greater clarity and even greater experience if they were a part of a faith community with us. Um, it's not that they are absent from God, um, but we do think that there is a support, there's a, a benefit, and there's life-giving aspects to being in a faith community. Um, but there is that temptation to just think, oh, well, they're not experiencing God because um, they're not in a church community right now. Uh, I think when you have that kind of mentality, you end up turning people off that, like, you make yourself so insider-outsider that, that people just don't want to be a part of you. Um, but how do we have open hands about, hey, um, we don't want to control your experience of God, but we have this, this, this space where you can come and worship God. We have this space where you can learn more. We have this space where you can serve God and give to other people who are in need um, without necessarily having to control their experience of that thing. So, while the characters in the story are a little bit caricatured, maybe you've heard the story a a thousand times, um, but there's a little bit of Herod and there's a little bit of the Magi in each of us. There's a little bit of that control, holding on self. It says, oh, I would just love to just get a relax on this thing and just have fun on this thing, Um, just... um, cut somebody else off of this because I want this thing for myself. And then there's this other side of us that says, but I want to lift others up and I want to support them. I want them to have a meaningful experience. And so we all have the opportunity to decide each day which way we want to kind of go that day. Do you want to be that controlling person or that supporting person? And so I want to also note that we do this with God too. Like most of the ways you probably imagine how do we control or how do we support are on our kind of inner human conversation. But how is it that we just treat God like the personal genie? The um, God, I want you to do this for me, do that for me, or being angry, God, why didn't you do this for me or that for me? Um, How meaningful and powerful would it be just to be like the Magi and say, I just want to show up and be aware of God's presence and celebrate that and have joy with that, not caring about all the stuff and just experience God. 
And I think that as we try to work on that, of just sitting with God, that that'll help shape us, that when we see other people in everyday life, that we can start to just loving that experience of that person instead of trying to shape how their life is going to go or how life my, my life's going. How do I just experience them? How do I just appreciate them, love them, um, and have joy without trying to make an agenda of something? In just a little while, we're going to take communion, which is our um, immediate opportunity to just celebrate, to just have joy, and to sit and contemplate God's presence. And so uh, I just want to leave you with that, that as we take communion today, just think about how, uh, how is that an opportunity to see an image of open-handedness, of God's table just being invited, um, and, and an invitation to all, and that we get to partake in that joy. And I hope we can just sit in that and experience it. Like magi, like open-handed, um, supportive people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for how this text and all of the texts um, offer us clarity and speak life in the midst of our own gray areas, in the midst of our own chaos, in the midst of our own um, tensions with our own selfishness or our own generosity. Lord, I just ask that you would continue to give us eyes and hearts um, that are aware of your presence, that just want to sit with you, that just want to experience um, people without having to control them. Lord, continue to, to shape us and be with us as we have ears and eyes and hearts uh, to listen to you throughout this end of the service. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Please join us in our last hymn. Go tell it on the mountain, number 167 in your hymnal, or you can sing it directly out of the, hymn, out of the bulletin, and if you can, please stand.